Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Welcome to this episode of She Wrote Too, and a special hello to anybody who has subscribed during the last week. It's great to see you here. This time we are going to be talking about a playwright, and her name was Gertrude E. Jennings, British playwright who was active at the beginning of the 20th century. And she wrote a huge amount of plays. I think there were over 50, weren't there, Nicola? Yes, there were. She, she had a really long and fruitful career mm. um, for many years. She was born in 1877 she and she lived for a full 80 years and she was working that whole time. She didn't get married or have children so she had an uninterrupted career and she was really quite prolific. Mm. Her plays were originally produced on the stage as you would expect but she also was one of the pioneers of radio. Her plays were broadcast on BBC Radio as early as 1923 and she was one of the first comedy dramatists to be broadcast, although she has been overlooked. And we're going to be talking about that play, Five Birds in a Cage, on Paul Carenza's podcast, which is the British Broadcasting Century. So we chatted to him a few weeks ago and hopefully we will be appearing on that sometime in the new year, we think. Yes. So Gertrude Jennings then, we decided that we would focus particularly on one of her plays which is called A Women's Influence and she was very active in striving for the vote. Gertrude Jennings started her career as an actress which meant that she had a real understanding of the things that you need to take into consideration when putting on a play and that does come across in her work. She did a lot of quite short plays, a lot of them are only half an hour or so These would tend to be produced perhaps at the beginning of a longer evening's entertainment. So her play would be on for half an hour, get the audience warmed up, and then there might be something longer after it as well. Do you know, I'd forgotten that she started as an actress because... um because I'd forgotten. <laughs> However, <laughs> what's reminded me is that I've uh, really admired how she establishes both the story and the character so quickly because she she did a lot of one-act plays which really don't last very long. And yet, at the end of it, you fully know all the people that, that are in the story that's been presented to you. And I thought she had quite an astonishing talent for it. But of course, she she had an acting background, so she probably had some real good experience and expertise in that. She did, and a lot of her plays are quite easy to put on. So there'll be a bunch of characters, they're in one situation, it only needs one lot of scenery, you haven't got lots of costume changes. So she really made it very easy for these plays to be performed. 
And I'm quite surprised that they don't appear more on amateur dramatic schedules nowadays. Because I know, Caroline and I want to do it, don't yeah, we? Yeah, I think it would be fun <laughs> to get on one of these plays. We will, we will do it, and yeah. we'll put it on here when we eventually do Yes. And we'll show that it can be done on radio <laughs> as well, because, yeah. yeah. So she was part of the Actresses Franchise League, which was an organisation set up in 1908. And that was specifically to influence the theatre world in favour of votes for women. So they were campaigners, but they really had a specific target audience. So one of their primary ways of putting forward suffrage arguments was to stage original comedy dramas. And they'd often ridicule the anti-suffrage campaigns in quite a amusing comedic way Mm. which is a really good way of getting somebody's point across I think using comedy absolutely when we were talking about that with Paul Mm -hmm. he went oh yes Ben Elton bit of politics politics (laughs) (laughs) yes so they in some ways it can seem a bit incongruous that you have something very lightweight and often quite silly to put forward really serious arguments But actually, I think there were good reasons for campaigning in this way, particularly in the political context of Gertrude Jennings' time, because anything that was considered too political could be censored by the government in this first decade of the 20th century. So she couldn't really put forward a powerful drama showing suffragettes being force-fed or any of these really serious political situations. She had to do it very subtly. So there was this veneer of frivolity Uh, that could then sneak these messages through underneath. And of course the audience watching it would know exactly what they were talking about. Yes. Just that it got under the view of the censors. By the way, I'm just admiring the phrase, veneer of frivolity. (laughs) That is great. I wish I'd thought of that. Yes, Uh, it is, it is. And I think there was some rule at the BBC as well that it couldn't be political, wasn't there? I think so. Yeah, so this was a little bit after, because she started going on the BBC from 1923 onwards. Mm. So this was after the Great War, where people had to be very careful what they said. And I think there were still quite a lot of rules about what you could and couldn't broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's get on to talking about this particular play that we want to look at. And this is called A Woman's Influence. And this was one of these suffrage plays that I was just talking about as part of the Actresses Franchise League. So this was written specifically to convince people that votes for women was a good thing. So this is one of these comedies that wants to ridicule anti-suffrage arguments and just show up how ludicrous the situation was. And the title refers to the argument that women didn't need the vote because they could influence their husbands. The husband was the voter. If a woman wanted things to change, she could influence him and he would then go and vote. And this play is designed to show that women's influence is not that strong and that there are very limited ways in which women can influence men and that they need the vote for themselves in order to have their political say. Yes, there are a few parts to the argument in a sense. One, that it should really be men doing the main decision making. Two, that women had sufficient influence. Three, that they weren't suitable for power. Mm. And that four, that it's always been done that way. And actually, if a woman was worth her salt, she would be able to influence men. Mm. And that should be enough. So it was always a case of settling for influence, not power. 
And so one of the things that this play shows up a bit is why that might fall down, but in a comedic way. The situation that we've got at the beginning of the play, we've got Margaret Lawrence, who I suppose is the main character, and she is a woman in, I suppose, a somewhat privileged situation in society, but she has recognised that things are not like that for everybody, and that the women working in the factories in the area where she lives really need help because it's a sweatshop and they're living on six shillings a week, some of them having to do piecework outside the factory and they're not really getting any good working conditions at all and she wants to do something to help them. And what she is supposed to be doing according to society is convincing her husband to speak to the local MP to get something done about it (laughs) and that's not working for her. So this is about her trying to campaign with other women and trying to get something done but being met with this obstacle that it's all got to be done through the men. So we've got her husband at the beginning haven't we called Herbert and he is he comes across quite a nice man really he's a good bloke. The stage directions say he's talking in loud cheerful tones at top speed which again Karen and I have discussed this but quite often these men who are benefiting from and upholding the patriarchy they're not bad people they don't they don't mean it (laughs) (laughs) they they don't I don't think they realize actually what they're doing they're just born into this system and they haven't questioned it and they uphold it Mm. and it's not because they're unkind (laughs) or even that they're jealously guarding power. I don't think they're even aware that they have it in some senses. So. No, I mean, Herbert is just he is wanting to get off to his club. He's <laughs> going to meet his buddy who's just come back from the South Pole. So he wants to hear all of how that expedition went. So he's just not thinking about these circumstances that Margaret has got on her mind. She's desperately trying to get her point across and he's just rushing about and he's not listening. Now... This is one of the ways that Jennings establishes things so quickly because she has Herbert talking over his wife. So that's an indication of his power and indifference immediately. But the things that he is talking about, that he wants to go to his club, hello, male institution, and then Bob Thurlow's just back from the South Pole because men can travel Mm -hmm. because they're free to go around the world. So she brings in all these things so subtly. Men are travelling around, men are in clubs, men are friends with each other, and they actually, going to the club, are women allowed at the club, Caroline? No, they're not. They're not. So, yeah, so that's within the first paragraph of this play we get all of this information. So straight off the bat, Gertrude Jennings has told us what we need to know. <laughs> and then, um, so Herbert is dismissing what Margaret's saying. He literally uses the phrase, don't worry your pretty little head, which is sort of become a cliched phrase about men dismissing women, but he genuinely says that in this play. My husband says that to me. <laughs> he says it ironically, yes. by the way. <laughs> Carry on, Caroline. So she's tried to convince him to go and t- um, see Mr Reed, who is the MP. And she knows that Mr. Reed won't listen to her. Herbert's saying, well, why don't you go and talk to him about it yourself? Because he just doesn't really even realise that Mr. Reed is not going to listen to Margaret. And at the end of their conversation, just as he's rushing out the door, he says, pretty women like you always get what you want. You know, ask me, I'll do it. Ask your husbands. Much better than fussing about votes for themselves. And 
he has just been ignoring her and dismissing her. She's been trying to ask him, that's what she's doing. Um, yes. And it's not working. I think if you were put, staging this on radio, it should she should sound a bit breathless to start with because he's walking along and it I get I think it'd be good if she's actually running after yeah. him. <laughs> I want to speak you when you just speak to Mr. Reed for me. And then he just carries on talking and walking and yeah. Yes. So anyway, Herbert's gone um, without any result to her attempt to influence him. And we get the entrance of Miss Thicket, who is Margaret's friend and fellow campaigner for the factories. And she is a pleasant, comely young woman with very neat hair and a decided manner. <laughs> so make of that what we will. She probably means business, I think. So they start talking about the situation in the factory and how they're trying to gather data to see what's going on. Um, one of the women who works in the factory is going to bring a list of names of people who she has found who do support votes for women. And they talk about how the women mostly have five or six children, they're trying to get by. and. There's this argument about women preserving the sanctity of the home. That was one of the arguments against women's suffrage. And Miss Thicket says, sanctity comes rather expensive when you've only got six shillings a week. Yes. So we've got arguments about class here as well. We've got these two women who are living in a more privileged situation in society. But we've got the idea that it's the working women who are as much in need of the vote as anybody else, and perhaps more so very much and Miss Thicket is on their side and quite fearsome-ish mm. about it mm. she is the one who brings I think she brings the report and she's concerned with the figures and the, and the money and mm. um, what's what's to be done and who's going to be influenced and when Margaret says that she wishes that Herbert would take it up Miss Thicket said well but he won't so she's quite aware of who has influence and who is interested in being influenced so there you go that's Jennings dismissing the argument of a wife having influence over her husband because if Herbert's not interested in that particular cause where's her influence mm. yeah. <laughs> the other argument about the sanctity of the home as well she demolishes that because all of these women are not in their homes they have to work because otherwise their families are going to starve and then they go on to look at the situation of, of some of the women who even have to work outside don't they at the factory so that means because they've brought working, their baby they're working at their home so it's piecework so some of the women so work have in to the go and collect it but others and will take it home and they will be doing it trying to look after the baby and trying to do whatever however many hundreds of pieces, pieces. Of they have to produce in one day yeah so it, with no company and doing all their own childcare mm. and being paid absolute pittance mm. They don't even have what very little aspects of health and safety there might be in the factory. <laughs> um, so they're even worse off than the factory workers. I wasn't laughing at people no. not having health and safety. I was just thinking how what bare minimum there was in terms of health and safety yeah, exactly. in factories at that time. I don't think they really were particularly concerned with it. I know. So um, it's possibly the idea that the factory owners don't really even know how many workers they've got. You know, as long as the goods turn up, they don't know or care what the home circumstances or the conditions are like for those peace workers. Well, it's like they're non-people. Mm. They're like capital, aren't they? Mm. I mean, lots of people will have studied an inspector calls at yeah. school 
or maybe done it recently with teenagers if you're if you're our kind of age and there it shows the disregard that the factory owners had for for workers yeah. so we've got on one hand the factory workers are being seen as sort of politically non-existent but we've also got these more privileged women considered politically non-existent you've got margaret can you wonder why should he consider a creature who in political life doesn't exist when they're talking about the possibility of approaching the mp so they do have that in common and solidarity with all women well why would the mp need to listen to women at that time because she doesn't vote doesn't vote doesn't have to keep her on side does he and that was part of the point but she had tried, she'd written to Mr Reed, and he had written back to her, hadn't he? And he said, <laughs> Dismissively, yeah, yes. I'm oh, sorry to hear there's so much misery among the women in the Hill Rise factories. No doubt the matter will be gone into before long. I cannot see my way clear to doing anything just at present. Um, so he dismisses them like that. And then there's another bit which is quite interesting, that he continues, Are you really a suffragette? If you knew how very little savour there was in parliamentary life, you wouldn't thirst for it. So he's appealing to her to feel sorry for him being an MP because parliamentary life is very difficult. Yes. So he sort of turns that back around and saying, oh, you wouldn't want to have a political voice. Allow me to protect you from it. (laughs) (laughs) By doing it all for you. So there we've got another anti-suffrage argument that parliamentary life is not very nice. You don't want it anyway. And of course, as Miss Thicket points out, they're only talking about the vote. They actually haven't gone as far as talking about parliamentary life. So he exaggerates that in order to make his point. But then, interestingly enough, we have another female character come into the scene, who is Mrs Perry, and she's quite different from our other two, isn't she, Nicola? She is. She is... I think she's better off, isn't she? Yeah, she's certainly got plenty of money. More privileged, and she supports the patriarchy. Mm. She doesn't see that women should have the vote. She thinks that women should be able to influence their husbands. And this is an interesting concept. It's still relevant in contemporary society today about women who internalise the ideas that women are somehow not up to Mm. the job. But Mrs Perry actually, I think in some ways prides herself on her ability to influence men and she then goes on to have a go she does yes Um, she uses one other little argument when she first comes into the scene and a very inconsequential one really but she says how good of you to take up such funny dull subject she's talking to margaret don't you find it terribly aging so there's that other <laughs> argument as well that uh, being involved in political life is aging oh you not we going should to s- not want to age of course oh yes no heaven forbid You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrotetoo.substack.com. We have Miss Thicket and Margaret and, and mrs perry but we don't have any older women and i was thinking 
how would an older woman who might support Mrs Perry's argument that mm. you should have influence, how would the older woman do it? Mm. Would she be tough as old boots and sort of, <laughs> you know, shout at a man until <laughs> she got what she wanted? Or would she have just given up by that mm. time and got herself a rock Yeah, that's interesting. So in some of Gertrude Jennings' other plays, she does talk about older women. So she didn't ignore them. But in this play, we've got Mrs Perry as the oldest at about 35. Yeah. Years. She also um, is talking about the factory women and she says, well, they oughtn't to have children if they will work. So sort of women who go to work, <laughs> they shouldn't have had children. And we hear that all the time, don't we? That women shouldn't have had children if they want to do this or yes. that and, or if they can't afford to look after them. Yeah, that's a, it's a matter of choice. current argument nowadays. Oh, yes, very much so, mm-hmm. yeah. And what Mrs Perry is failing to recognise is that there is not very much choice in these women's lives because no. she so she's failing to notice her own privilege mm. yeah margaret gives actual examples of some of the factory women that she knows so somebody's been deserted by her husband somebody else is standing for eight hours in the factory and she has a week old baby there's somebody else who is the sole wage earner for the household because her husband drinks she's doing a man's work at the factory but she only gets half the wages because she's a woman so these are all real situations that these characters know about and that Mrs Perry is oblivious to. Yes, and she then uh, sort of decides that she will take up their mantle, but it's, she almost does it as a bit of a, a challenge she to herself. Yes, yeah, it's a challenge. Herself. It's a, sort of a bit of a joke or a, kind of a bet with the others that she can get Herbert to approach Mr Reed. So she is going to do what Margaret failed to do, and she's going to use a woman's influence to make sure that Herbert then influences the MP. So she takes on that challenge of how she's going to do it. And <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny what she does then, because she puts on her makeup but then cries. Yeah. <laughs> so very pretty but also weak. <laughs> and in need of a big man. Yes. And she flatters him. So he comes back yes. to his club. <laughs> and um, we will go back to actually some of the earlier parts, but let's talk about Mrs. Perry influencing Herbert first. So she says things like, How oh, I envy your strength, your self control. We women are such foolish creatures, so different. I'm so ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so she puts herself down all the time to compare with him mm. so that uh, she's puffing up his ego. Yeah. Um, which he responds to rather nicely, he doesn't does. he? So he feels flattered by it. And the stage directions actually have, in brackets, flattered (laughs) when he's talking. And so he does listen to her. So she says things like, what the weak, faltering instinct of a woman discovers, the strong hand of a man can put right. Dear Mr Lawrence, won't you help me? And of course, he does want to help her because he's seeing this woman who is crying, who's flattering him, who's saying how strong he is. And she then talks about the factory and how the MP won't pay attention to her. So she needs him to represent women in the MP's presence. And Herbert starts saying things. He obviously does know a bit about the situation because he says that if you start messing about with the wages of the women, if you put those wages up, then the shareholders' profits would go down and that would be really hard to get past them. He does know why the situation is challenging. And Mrs Perry discovers something quite funny, doesn't she? Yes. Um, 
she is quite a rich woman she's got shares in things um she doesn't know what they're in though no she doesn't know turns out she's a shareholder (laughs) she's a shareholder in hillrise factories which she discovers because herbert knows this because i think he has some he's a trustee trustee of of her finances yeah so he knows what her money is invested in and she doesn't, but he tells her that it's invested in Hillrise Securities, who are the ones that run this awful factory. Which rather changes her tune. It does. So <laughs> she suddenly thinks, uh-oh, if the women's situation in the factory is improved, her shares are going to go down. And she tells him, oh, actually, no, hang on, I'm going to think of some other way of doing this. So don't go and speak to Mr. Reed just yet. We'll sort something else out. And they part and Herbert goes back to tell Margaret what has been going on. So with this character, Mrs. Perry, there's a lot of interesting things to discuss there, aren't there? So we've got her idea of what influence means. It's a very limited kind of influence. It involves crying, pretending that you're weak and flattering a man. So it's quite a demeaning type of influence. Yes, and that's what she would defend mm. and would see as quite clever mm. and cunning. Mm. But it's not really, is it? Mm. It's instead of having being able to put together a rational argument, it's mm. just kind of <laughs> crying. <Yeah. laughs> um, which which means, is, of course, something that women also get criticised for. Nowadays, you do see a lot of people say, oh, they just cry and everybody feels sorry for them. So you get men thinking, oh, men aren't allowed to cry, so we don't get anybody taking care of us that is an argument that you do see quite a bit yes and mrs perry because of her wealth when she has been moved to try and help these women although actually i'm not sure about the mm. genuine nature of her interest because it was really for a bet wasn't it yes it was just trying to show how women's influence works Yes. Um, that's all she wants to say. She doesn't actually want to help the factory women. She wants to prove to the other two that her influence is all you need and you don't need the vote. So it's an anti-suffrage bet that she's got with them. Yeah, it's anti-suffrage. And then, of course, as soon as she realises it might hit her pocket, she's not interested anymore yeah. at all. Mm. So you have also got this class issue where she represents the privileged women who might, on the surface, perhaps feel some sympathy for the working class women but when it comes down to it they're protecting their own interests yeah and that is showing the idea that as we have said in previous episodes the patriarchy isn't men it's a social system yes there are women who uphold it too like mrs perry absolutely and this is something i think it is an important point for everyone to sort of consider that the patriarchy is not a group of evil men trying to keep women down it's a system that has been set up over hundreds of years in one of our other books that we talked about in lolly willows it says you know, how extensive and lengthy a period of time this system has been mm. set up over so if you're trying to overturn it you have to go back all those millennia yeah. um, and dismantle all of these social structures, which is a difficult job. It it's is. not done overnight. No. So it's not saying that men are bad or anything like that. In, in this instance, the patriarchy supports the class system and vice versa, mm. really, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, Mrs Perry is not interested in losing out on her money. So as soon as she finds out that she might be worse off, uh, suddenly her concern for those women who are living in poverty and terrible conditions uh, evaporates. Mm. 
Now going back to a little bit before Mrs Perry tries to influence Herbert, mm. there are some quite interesting things that she says. There is a woman who comes from the factory to bring some data that she's collected from her neighbours about the appetite for women's franchise um, within her community. Mm-hmm. So I think she's been collecting a petition or something and she is bringing that to Margaret and Miss Thicket. And Mrs Perry says before she arrives, I'm sure I'm perfectly satisfied. I find nothing in life to grumble at. I don't want to vote. So that just illustrates that she is in a situation where she's quite happy. She's quite comfortable. Everything is fine for her. And she's not recognising how very different it is for other sections of society. And then Mary Ball, who is the factory worker who comes along, she, interestingly, also uses that the summer's coming and that means longer time for working, so one mustn't grumble. So they, they kind of, the language parallels each other. Mrs Perry's got nothing to grumble at because she's very comfortable. Mary Ball is saying that she mustn't grumble because she's going to be working all the hours of daylight in the summer, which is a very different situation. Very different situation and also very long hours. Mm. But it shows the conditioning that they've both had mm. into accepting this system. Mm. So we've got two challenges really haven't we Margaret and Miss Thicket and the others are all reasonably satisfied well Mary Ball is not satisfied she is the factory worker who I suppose she has been conditioned to not grumble about her yeah lot. Th- well that's what but, I mean yeah she no she's not satisfied she no. hasn't got a good life no but um she's still going along with I mustn't grumble you know he's mm. he's most kind I'm sure only for the drink, my ladies. Yes, so she's talking about her she's, husband. Yeah, so her abusive husband. husband. Unlike some of the other factory workers who are the sole breadwinners, she's the breadwinner because her husband is a drunk. And she sort of says, well, he's not actually abusive, he's not that bad. But obviously he can't do anything to support the family. I think at one point she says that he never raises his hand to her yeah, and, and so she sees a, that as a... It's a low bar. It's <laughs> still something that we hear today about... Um, somebody say oh well he's not abusive so yes fairly low standards for men's behavior yes indeed mary ball is very keen on votes for women she says she's heard about it some of us were thinking that if that came along it might do us a bit of good so that's why she has been collecting this petition um, and she is in turn appealing to the more privileged women to try and use their privilege to do something about it Meanwhile, they have got limited influence themselves. So it is this sort of chain of trying to get someone to do something about it yeah. and the challenges that arise in that circumstance. It's an interesting chain of power, isn't mm. it? Because of all the things that you just said, I don't need to repeat those. But it's quite sad. And she realises that if they all had the vote, they would have a more direct mm. line of influence. Yes. But think about it they've got to persuade some posh woman to do their bidding for them and then hope that the posh woman's husband is um amenable to it and you wouldn't even know where you were going to be stopped um because you could spend a lot of time you know trying to win someone over Mm. and get them to make the case for you and they might they might not they might not take it any further and then the husband might or might not Mm. so it's like a really poor pressure group yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, so that's why the women from the factory really are starting to try and mobilize to try and claim their rights for themselves because they would otherwise just be relying on everybody else to do something which is not going to happen that's right 
and she manages to make all of this happen in a one-act play, yeah. doesn't she? So let's talk about the resolution of this Yes, play it's, then. it's quite a positive resolution. And remember that the audience will be people who probably are on the side of suffrage. I know it's supposed to be influencing everybody, but there's probably fairly amenable audience to it. And it's showing how there is a way forward for this. So we've got Herbert comes back and he's telling Margaret all about Mrs Perry and they discuss it between themselves and they work out very quickly that Mrs Perry is just in it for her own interests. Yes. And we do find more about Herbert's character from the dismissive person at the beginning. He is actually quite a decent chap and Margaret is then able to argue about how the influence of women is with this one weapon which is tears. She says the helplessness of women using her one weapon, sometimes beautifully, sometimes merely frivolously, like today, sometimes with degradation, but always, always the same weapon. So she's making him realise that that's all a woman's influence is, that it's bursting into tears and hoping for the best, and that that's not a good enough situation. And they need to be able to use their intelligence, and so that everybody realises that they're reasonable creatures, they're not parasites, she says. Yes, it's actually quite an optimistic conclusion because mm-hmm. Margaret gets to have her say, doesn't she? Yes. You've you've just been quoting from her. She makes quite a for this play a long speech. Herbert is to quiet. Herbert. That's the difference. He listens and he actually responds positively mm. and says that he he will do something. Mm. He says, "I begin to think there is something in what you say, and that I ought to help you after all." He does come round to I do see idea. it. Yes, Margaret, I will help you. Yeah. I can in a hundred ways, and the work will be ever so much easier if we do it together. And then Margaret repeats that positive idea. That's the key to the whole woman's movement. We can do so much more if we work together. Oh, there we go. And that's the last line of the play. So it is leaving the audience with that idea that everybody needs to put their efforts into this situation and everybody's different social situations talents everything comes together to create this change in society so what with it being a comedy Mm. you know with the Shakespearean comedy where everyone has to get married (laughs) everyone's got to it's not quite that but everyone has to end up happy because it's a comedy so you know there has to be this positive resolution and it really is so it would have been quite uplifting and encouraging I would think yeah I think the audience would have really responded well to that and perhaps had renewed enthusiasm for the cause yes let's hope so and let's hope it continues was there anything else that we were going to cover about this today um, well we really wanted to focus on this one particular um, suffrage play because I, I suppose she did write a lot of other things didn't she and we read quite a few of them when we were preparing this podcast and it, I think it's safe to say that you weren't initially a fan were you when you first read some of Gertrude Jennings work in the British Library ah yeah I had a swatty day it's very exciting <laughs> I want to tell everyone about it because you can just join as a member at the British Library as a reader and you can ask them online for any books that you want and 
and they will get them out for you and then you go and get a table and you can read these books so I got all these old plays out and I think it was hungry or something <laughs> that's the trouble with archival research isn't it that you're sitting there and it's lunchtime and you, think you don't want to waste your time at your desk so you want to keep no. going keep going but you get really hungry and... yeah really, yeah so I don't think I enjoyed it very much but when I came home and got her plays on my kindle and started um, looking at them in the comfort of my own home with a full tummy I actually saw the merit in them and, and saw how funny they were and particularly five birds in a cage mm. this idea that Gertrude Jennings came up with of which is still used in comedy all the time putting people not that many people necessarily into a situation where they're more or less stuck in five birds in a cage they literally were it was a lift that was stuck but it's a, it's a device using comedy now where people are in a situation that they're stuck in and they just become more and more ridiculous and they won't actually leave. If You, you can think of loads of examples. I mean, think of Faulty Towers mm. and Basil and Sybil. I mean, they shouldn't be running a hotel, but they're absolutely <laughs> stuck there, aren't they? And so they become more and more kind of revolting and grotesque. But Jennings was using that device from a long time ago. Yeah. So I think she was really innovative and has been... She must have inspired so many mm. other writers because her techniques have been well used yeah. since then. So she was able to comment on the social issues of her day. There's a lot about class, isn't there? In Five Birds yeah. in a Cage, which is the one that we're talking about on the British Broadcasting Century next year, um, that throws together people from different classes. There's Poached Eggs and Pearls, which was one that we thought was quite funny, where that's a wartime <laughs> play where you have got these duchesses and other ladies who have had to work in a canteen. Um, yes. to support the war cause um, and there's a lot of funny bits in that Sossum Mash yes yeah, Sossum Mash <laughs> and there's um, a really great one The Rest Cure yeah. where a, a very sensitive man has to go, <laughs> go and get some rest <laughs> to recover from yeah, he's his... an author isn't he and it sort yes. of goes on about oh you know what authors are like so a lot of these plays are available to find online. We could put some links to them in the show notes, couldn't we, so that people can just yeah. go straight to them and have a read. Some of them are not available, which is why you had to go to the British Library, but there are plenty that you can find that are now out of copyright. And also I'd like to mention a book called The Methuen Drama of Suffrage Plays, which is the one that contains a woman's influence. And there's a lot of other plays by other writers in that too. That's edited by Naomi Paxton. And we will probably be looking at some of the others in there because there's some very interesting looking works in that book. Tap, 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 ordering now. <laughs> right, great. So that's that for this episode. Um, we're really looking forward to seeing you next time. And do share this episode with your friends. And let's get some more people subscribing to receive the next one. You have been listening to She Wrote Too with Nicola Morgan and Caroline Rance. To make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode, subscribe at shewrote2.substack.com. That's shewrote2.substack.com, where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to welcome you again next time. Mm-hmm.